You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour. Twitter's board mounts a poison pill defense against Elon Musk, while Musk continues to taunt them, pointing out that without Jack Dorsey, Twitter's board members collectively own almost no shares, and if his bid succeeds, they won't get a salary. We'll have all the details as he hints at a hostile takeover. Plus, we'll get an inside look at Rivian's factory in Illinois and see how the EV maker is trying to combat the chip crisis later this hour. And it's expected to be the busiest wedding season in decades. We'll chat with the CEO of Rent the Runway about how all those I do's could mean big business for the fashion platform. Now to our top story. Over the weekend, he sent just a tweet with three words, love me tender. He could have been listening to the iconic Elvis Presley song, or could it be a cryptic reference to a potential tender offer to Twitter shareholders for control of the company? Friday, Twitter's board chose the poison pill defense, adopting a provision that would make it harder for Musk to acquire more shares and ultimately dilute his stake. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow here to break it all down. Ed, a lot going on here. Right. What's the latest? Twists and turns. It's interesting because the 7.5% gain we saw in Twitter shares Monday is the biggest jump since April 4th when Elon Musk's stake in Twitter was first disclosed. You remember it jumped 27% on that occasion. The broad psychology around this is that we're moving towards an outcome that would be more favorable for shareholders. So you talk about the poison pill defense. Twitter can issue new shares that investors can buy at a discount apart from Musk. Anyone trying to acquire a stake greater than 15 percent in the company. Here's the thing. Come with me into my Bloomberg terminal. This is the other side of the debate. We're trading at around $45 a share. That's the blue line. Uh, or $48 a share, I'd say. That's the, the white line. The blue line is the average and this 12-month price target, which is even lower. And that green dot on the right-hand side of the screen is the $54.20 per share offer that Musk currently has on the table. And the thinking is, this could be lowball. Musk has been tweeting for three days about how Twitter's board has a duty to the shareholders to consider his bid, a fiduciary duty. But the other side of that debate is they have a fiduciary duty to get the best possible offer for them. We're so far away from $73 a share, which is the 52-week high on the stock. So some consideration. Final point. 
two names top of the list for Fidelity platform right now. Retail investors are buying into Tesla and Twitter. And it's interesting because how many tweets has Musk said in the last few days? And some of the school of thought out there is that he's trying to get momentum behind a movement, just like he's done with uh, Tesla getting retail investors on board. Is he trying to get those retail investors on board with Twitter as well, Em? All right, Ed, thank you. The question now becomes, could Musk team up with someone else to make this Twitter dream a reality? Bloomberg Intelligence suggests Musk could partner with Oracle, for example, and a private equity consortium. That includes Toma Bravo to combat Twitter's poison pill while raising the bid 10 to 15 percent to about $50 billion. The Wall Street Journal is reporting Apollo Global is also considering joining in. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin joins us now. Max. If Elon Musk really wants to do this, what does he have to pull off? What does he have to pull together in this moment? Well, you have a couple of issues, one of which is that, you know, Elon Musk has this huge Twitter following. Obviously, he's able to, to, to move markets. On the other hand, in order to kind of pull together some sort of consortium, you're going to have to convince a bunch of other rich guys, whether it's, uh, you know, Larry Ellison or whoever, that they want to sign up for this wild ride. And pretty much, you know, one of the ways that Elon Musk has distinguished himself, of course, is by, by being the most risk-happy of anyone. So it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine who comes together in that consortium and if they're really willing to go for it. Now, as someone who's interviewed Elon Musk many times over the last couple of decades, Masks, what's your sense of how serious he is about this and marshalling the amount of capital that he would need to pull this off? And, or do you think he's just messing with investors? Well, I think with Musk, you know, it's always a little bit of both, right? If anyone watched this, uh, the interview that he did last week at the TED conference, you know, you saw that he hadn't really thought through a bunch of the kind of crucial aspects of what this transaction would be. On the other hand, Elon Musk is an incredible marketer. He's somebody who likes to kind of go where the trends are pushing him. So you could sort of see a situation where he almost, I don't want to say accidentally, you know, winds up owning Twitter, but but where he kind of gets carried away uh, by events. And I, I think, you know, if, if you're a Tesla shareholder, probably the best thing that could happen here would be for Musk to not be able to buy Twitter, but be able to have just a huge, you know, cultural, you know, moment and, and not get blamed when the deal falls apart. Elon Musk potentially ending up owning Twitter by accident. That's an interesting thought. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin, as always, good to have you. Many questions remain about how exactly Musk wants to change Twitter if he acquires it, but he's made it clear he wants it to look and sound more like a free speech town square. Here's what he had to say during a TED Talk last week. I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech uh, where all, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square, um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. To discuss, we're joined by Teddy Goff, co-founder and partner at Precision, a leading strategy and marketing agency, also the former digital campaign manager for President Obama. So, Teddy, do you think this is a fight over free speech or is it something else? Well, I think it's 
largely a fight over power. What I mean by that is, you know, everybody understands this is not exactly a matter of free speech in the sense that nobody's being thrown into prison for anything that they tweet. You know, the important thing I think to keep in mind is Twitter and all the social uh, platforms are driven by algorithms that determine the likelihood of, uh, of using this or that post when you log in. And the question of who control, who writes those algorithms, um, you know, is really um, consequential. So it's not a matter so much of, um, you know, uh, free speech. Most people have the right to tweet whatever it is that they want. It's a question of, um, you know, which, which tweets and posts get out algorithmic promotion and wind up in the feeds of millions of people and which ones don't. And I think the view of Musk, and, and obviously this is sort of validated by the fact that Donald Trump got kicked off Twitter, that sort of supports his point, is that these algorithms are written in a way that, you know, sort of effectively censor conservatives, even those who aren't literally kicked off the platform, feel that they are sort of shadow banned or, or that there's a thumb on the scale preventing their um, virality. And so I think that the, the, the question how these things are written, do we have transparency into the way these things are written, and ultimately, you know, which tweets, you know, go viral and which ones don't is, is hugely consequential. And I think that's what this is really about. There's also the question of whether a free speech town square can really exist on the internet or anywhere. Renee DeResta of the Stanford Internet Observatory uh, wrote in The Atlantic, the public square metaphor places wholly unrealistic expectations on what social media is or should be. It may simply be that when networks grow past a certain size, they become unmanageable. I mean, do you think Twitter has ever really been a public town square? Well, no, because of this reason of algorithms. You know, in a public town square, um, you can um, shout whatever it is you want to shout, and the people around you are going to hear it. On Twitter, the whole you know mechanic of the of the platform, the whole idea of it is your tweet can go out to millions of people who didn't make the choice of following you. You know, just because um, you know it gets it, it starts taking off, and then the algorithm boosts it uh, into feeds all around the world. So it's really sort of fundamentally unlike a town um, square where you know you're sort of um, your reach is sort of limited by the volume of your voice. Um, you know, that's obviously not the case on Twitter. I do agree that these these platforms have all become sort of ungovernable. If you just look at the, um, you know, the empirical reality, both Democrats and Republicans are livid at Twitter. The Republicans are livid that Trump and some of his allies got booted. The Democrats think that Twitter is the reason Trump and some of his allies moved from the fringe to the political mainstream in the first place. The same debate obviously happens, you know, arguably even more um, caustically over Facebook. So, you know, I, I think that these platforms play a huge role in the discourse of the country. Um, Twitter, especially to a weird degree, because even though it's smaller than Facebook by numbers, it has a disproportionate share of journalists spending all day there. And so things sort of um, make their way from Twitter into the nightly news and the local news and the daily papers all around the country. And um, it is obviously the case that these, these questions are fundamentally political and, um, you know, the way that these platforms have, have navigating these questions has obviously uh, alienated both sides. So the question is, you know, should, if, if, if as you say, Twitter is ungovernable or maybe ungovernable, then, then, then what should happen? You know, it's a private company. Is, is, the Elon, is Elon Musk the answer? And if, if not Elon Musk, is it, is it a public utility? Is it, is it something else? 
Um, I personally think it's probably not Elon Musk. You know, there's been a lot of um, a lot of uh, people, mainly Elon Musk, you know, sort of allies and supporters over the past couple of days saying, hey, look at, for instance, Bloomberg, look at the Washington Post. The Washington Post was bought by Jeff Bezos. There's a really critical difference between the Bloomberg Washington Post model and we what Elon Musk is proposing. You know, um, Bloomberg and, and Bezos don't march into the editorial boards, uh, editorial boardrooms at, at, at Bloomberg Media and at the Washington Post and demand a change in coverage. They pledged not to. Um, Musk is sort of doing the opposite. He has essentially pledged to uh, alter the way that information is shared and disseminated on uh, on Twitter. So there is a question of media consolidation. He's obviously not the first billionaire to get into the media ownership game, but he's the first, at least in this you know sort of cohort, to do so with an express um, agenda behind that. Uh, and, and that agenda is not um, the sustainment of media or um, you know public uh, information. It's a it's got a political bent to it. So you know right. whether Twitter and these other platforms ought to be um, regulated as public utility or not, um, uh, I think, you know, to, to me, it's concerning that one individual, by the way, it could be, a, you know, you know, I'm a Democrat, it could be a Democrat. One individual could take over one of these companies with an express purpose of um, changing the way that the terms of service and the algorithm works, which, again, is ultimately about who controls the discourse and are, you know, these sort of fringe uh, um, uh, Positions able to be disseminated and mainstream to millions and millions of uh, of people, and what that does to our uh, politics. So he's obviously got an agenda, and in that sense, um, I think his agenda is uh, it might be aligned with the economic incentives of the board and of the shareholders, but it's probably not aligned with the public good. Well. It remains to be seen exactly what his agenda is. Teddy Goff, co-founder and partner at Precision Strategies. Always good to have you back here on the show. Coming up, Elon Musk hinting at a hostile, hostile takeover. But what will really happen? We're going to have a conversation with Stanford professor Curtis Milhaupt about why this particular takeover attempt might matter more than the many others that have come before it. This is Bloomberg. said he made his best and final offer for Twitter last week at $43 billion, but is now hinting at a hostile takeover that would involve a tender offer backed by other investors. I want to bring in Curtis Milhaupt, Stanford Law School professor and senior fellow for a broader view of this and talk about uh, what's particularly notable about this potentially hostile takeover. Uh, Professor Milpop, thank you so much for joining us. You have studied hostile takeovers all over the world. What makes how this is evolving here different from what you've seen before? Well, I think in terms of the, the actual offer itself, uh, there, this is so far playing out according to a standard playbook in the United States of an unsolicited bid for a public company followed by the target company's uh, management adopting a uh, defensive measure of the poison pill. So, so far, nothing so, uh, so special. But when you think about the company that is the target here, a social media company, I think this is quite unique. And it really picks up on the conversation you were having with your uh, previous guest about uh, who gets to control uh, public discourse in the form of these uh, these platforms. And so I think that's very distinctive. Many uh, social media companies and other tech companies have adopted dual-class capitalization structures, meaning that the founders retain control of the enterprise but with, by ownership of uh, stock with uh, super voting rights. 
Twitter uh, did not do that. And now we're seeing uh, one of the potential consequences of an unsolicited bid for the company. So it raises a lot of very fascinating new, new questions that we haven't seen before. It's interesting given how criticized the dual class share structure has been at Facebook, at Google, in terms of potentially giving those founders too much power. How likely is it that Twitter's poison pill defense will actually work? Well, so the board has instituted the, the poison pill without shareholder approval, which is, of course, uh, the beauty of the poison pill for, for U.S. managers, unlike defensive measures uh, in other parts of the world, in the U.K., in Europe, or in Japan, where shareholders would have to approve the, the defensive measure in the United States. It's not required. But they will have to answer, ultimately, to the, the shareholders. Uh, they cannot simply sit behind the poison pill. They're going to have to justify why uh, not letting uh, Elon Musk's tender offer go forward is in the best interests of the corporation and its uh, and its shareholders. Uh, but I think that this may lend momentum to um, the movement toward adoption of dual-class capitalization structures. There already is considerable momentum around this. Many of the IPOs in recent years have been founder-controlled dual-class uh, structures, and I think that other founders out there uh, who are, you know, coming through the through the pipeline are going to be looking at this and asking themselves whether they want to someday uh, be faced with the situation that uh, that the Twitter board is, and probably concluding, no, we we do not. Right. So I think this is going to lend, you know, momentum to the controversy over dual class uh, stock, and the question whether is this actually in the best interest of society because these founders can be um, uh, in insulated from short-term market pressures, or does this just reinforce uh, having a small number of extraordinarily wealthy people controlling uh, these incredibly important and powerful platforms? We're looking at a graph here of the amount of followers that Musk has on Twitter, about a third of the daily active users on Twitter overall, a third, a, a third uh, of Twitter's daily active users. You know, how does that change the equation here quickly? Does that make this, you know, uh, more unfair or un, un gosh, I, I don't know what the word is, but it, it, there's something what? different. Well, I think just going back to the conversation you had with the previous guest, we have this anomalous situation in which you know, we live in a capitalist society. This is a for-profit firm. The board of directors of Twitter is charged with doing what's in the best financial interests of the shareholders. And yet we have a corporation that is enormously powerful and influential in public discourse and in political discourse uh, uh, specifically. So that's a very unique situation. And uh, I think that uh, the way this plays out is going to have ramifications in Washington of course, and, and elsewhere, because this is not just a garden variety hostile takeover. Curtis Milhaupt, Stanford Law School professor, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us today. Rivian lower today. The electric vehicle maker has been hampered by the global chip crisis, but is trying to ramp output. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow toured Rivian's factory in Illinois with the company's CEO. 
Production's ramping up here in Normal, Illinois at Rivian's 3.3 million square foot EV factory. The company's building three different electric vehicles and it's not easy going. Our biggest challenge today really resides around the supply chain. It's a small subset of, of the components in our vehicle which we do have uh, on a constrained basis and it's limiting the overall output for production. A big part of the problem, a lack of semiconductors. The plant is split up with two separate body lines and two separate general assembly lines. One fork is dedicated to consumer products. Rivian is focused on its battery electric pickup called R1T, but is also working on small volumes of the R1S SUV. The other body and general assembly lines are building two versions of an electric delivery van for Amazon. But the ability to share the core technology backbone between those battery packs drive units, network architecture, ECU topology, the electronic stack, the perception stack, really is what fueled the ability to, to go quickly. We got a behind-the-scenes look at the plant where 5,200 workers work alongside hundreds of highly automated robotic arms. Sheet metal, steel and aluminum is brought in as coils. Massive industrial stamps generating huge force shape the metal into panels that fit the specific product. The body shop fuses all of the panels and structural parts together using advanced welding techniques. Then it's to a high-tech paint shop where multiple coats are applied. Next, we're off to General Assembly, where the top hat or body is married with the skateboard, which includes the motors, battery pack, and telematics. Moving along the line, everything from doors and windshields to the steering wheel and infotainment systems are added. After final tweaks and quality checks, it's off to the lot to await delivery. Rivian forecasts it will build 25,000 EVs this year across the two consumer models and 10,000 vans for Amazon. It built little more than 2,500 EVs in Q1. Despite the challenges, the production rate is improving. It's incredibly exciting to, to see records being set in terms of daily output or the production rate being set almost on a daily basis. To meet that demand long term, Rivian plans a second $5 billion plant in Georgia and hopes lessons learned in Illinois will help it hit the ground running. Ed Ludlow, Bloomberg News in Normal, Illinois. Our Ed Ludlow there. Well, Gallaudet University, an educational institution for the deaf and hard of hearing, is getting the commencement speech of its dreams. Apple CEO Tim Cook has agreed to deliver the speech after a student invited him via Twitter. In American Sign Language, she describes how blown away students across campus were by Apple's original movie, Coda. Cook will speak at Gallaudet on Friday, May 13th. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to our top story, Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter. The world's richest man tweeting in his latest salvo that if he successfully acquired Twitter, the board's salary would be zero dollars. For more on the most recent twist and turns, our Ed Ledlow back with us. And that's not all, Ed. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting tweet to make, and he's been digging at this idea about fiduciary duty that Twitter's board has to present his offer to existing shareholders. By the way, we're looking again at that 7.5% gain on Monday, biggest jump since April 4th, when Musk's stake in Twitter, the original stake, was first disclosed. And it's interesting because he's trying to make this about being the right thing in the interest of shareholders. And his additional point is, 
The board, in not passing on that offer, A, are not fulfilling their fiduciary duty, but also they don't have the same vested interest as shareholders. Why? He keeps poking at the number of shares or the volume of shares that Twitter's board has. If you strip out Jack Dorsey, who steps down from the board anyway later this year, he's saying that they can't have economic interests aligned with shareholders because they own a negligible amount of stock. And luckily for you, Em, I had a few hours of free time today, so we crunched the numbers. Thank you, Ed. And this is the point, right? These are negligible volumes of shares that each board member has. Most of the board members on Twitter's board are paid a salary for what is essentially a part-time job. It ranges from, say, $200,000 to $300,000. And they have negligible amounts of shares. Even in the case, for example, let's pick out Omid Kordistani has 184,000 shares. That's only 0.02% of the float. And so he keeps hammering home this idea, do what's in the best interest of shareholders. And his main argument appears to be that because they don't hold that much stock on the board, they're not aligned with those interests. Right. And of course, they st still got Jack Dorsey on the board, who's got a For now. almost yep. a 3% stake, but that's only till May. Ed, thank you. I want to continue this conversation about Twitter's board and what the board could do to stop a potential takeover by Elon Musk and what Musk needs to do if he's really serious. I'm joined now by Andy Freeman, co-head of the shareholder activism practice at Olshent from Woloski. Andy, first of all, uh, how much does it matter that uh, Twitter's board members, without Jack Dorsey don't collectively own a large number of shares. Is that unusual? Yeah, hi Emily, thanks for having me on. You know, it's it's not too unusual. And that line of arguing is just quite frankly not gonna get Musk very far. The board is protected by the broad leeway and the deferential aspects of Delaware's business judgment rule. Um, so going forward with a fiduciary duty-based argument, uh, when you have a, a company and a board like Twitter's, which I view as you know, highly defended, the, the, it's a staunch defensive profile. You have a company here, and I look at 100 or so public companies a year to assess the pathway to a hostile bid. You know, looking at Twitter, they have a classified board structure in place. Yes, they're looking to potentially declassify, but that's a three, two, three-year-out plan. Uh, so for now, they're they're protected uh, in the way that they only have one-third, roughly one-third of their board up for election this year. And in fact, that number this year is just two directors out of the what will be a 10-member board. You need majority control to uh, force through a, a hostile bid like Musk's here. And um, when you think about Twitter's profile, again, shareholders can't call special meetings. They can't act by consent. They can't remove directors without cause. He needs to somehow find a, a way to give shareholders a voice. We've been hearing that through his Twitter feed over the past several days. And you know, there, he, it's not right. to say he doesn't have a pathway. He has a strategy here, and we'll see if he employs it. So let's talk about that. If he really wants to get this done, if Elon Musk really wants to get this done, what does he need to do? In my view, it's, it's a one-two punch strategy. He launches a hostile tender offer, and knowing Musk is penchant for 420 cannabis jokes, why not Wednesday, 420? Uh, launch an, a formal tender offer and combine that simultaneously with launching a, a proxy strategy. And it's a little bit of an out-of-the-box strategy, but Musk is an out-of-the-box guy. Uh, it's called a withhold proxy fight. And what he would do, he missed the boat on nominating for this year. Uh, that ship sailed late uh, in late February. So those two candidates, he can't nominate for those seats himself. What he can do is run a full-blown proxy fight seeking to f ensure that those two directors do not get a majority of the votes cast at the annual meeting. Importantly, what it does is it gives him a platform for a shareholder referendum on his offer. 
he uses those two directors who would be in the what I call the firing line uh, in terms of Egan Durbin and Patrick Pichette and puts the full weight of the pressure on their election in order to try to prevent them from from receiving the votes they need to be elected. And that would be the way that shareholders can have a voice. So how likely is it that he can pull off a one-two punch or would this require more punches than Elon Musk has hands? It's it's going to look the board the way the board is situated and the way it's heavily guarded the way I see kind of to give it a Star Wars analogy. The board right now is sitting there at like the Death Star with the force field protection up. It's it's heavily defended. If the board wants to sit back and just say no and do a resist and rebuff strategy for 12 to 14 months, they can do just that. Uh, but that's not to say Musk can't mount pressure and he can do it through this withhold strategy. But that's just a small bite at the apple. In my view, the really big bite at the apple comes next year at the 2023 annual meeting, even though de facto majority control won't be up. Uh, what you do have are four directors out of the 10 up in 2023, 20, with two of them being biggies, uh, the CEO and the chairman. So you can get effective control in 2023. I know it's nobody really wants to wait that long, but what you do is you start to uh, you start to chip away at them. You keep the pressure on, you run the proxy fight this year, you try to build and mobilize a uh, the, the withhold strategy to, to reject the two directors this year, and you see where that gets you. Maybe it's enough to move the needle, and the board sees the writing on the wall and know that they're gonna face the music soon enough. All right, love all the metaphors from the gloves to the Death Star. Andy Friedman, co-head of the shareholder activism practice at Olshen from Woloski. Thank you so much. As we were talking, the trial date was set for those Tesla investors suing over that 2018 Go Private tweet that Elon Musk uh, sent uh, all those years ago, still making waves. That trial now set for January 17th, so early next year. Coming up, will we see a crypto-based social network, or is it too early? We're going to talk about that and much more with Mercedes Bent of Lightspeed Venture Partners. We'll discuss all things consumer crypto, NFTs, and more. That is next. This is Bloomberg. Crypto market swings continue as Bitcoin drops to its lowest level in more than a month, along with other digital assets tumbling. Our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik, here with more. Shanali, how long is this going to keep up? Yeah, it's a great question here because we did see cryptocurrencies drop. We saw Bitcoin drop to about 38580 so at some point today. But at the other hand, we are seeing it rebound. We have it now above 40000 uh, almost 41000 Really volatile here, Emily. But the question here is twofold. One, what is going to be the next? catalyst to help push Bitcoin higher because right now it is staying within this tight range and the second question is can it get much lower you do have some strategists like at 22v research that believes it can get significantly lower down to the 30,000 level so the question is who is right and the question is also to what extent does this depend on other factors as risk aversion starts to be more volatile in broader markets
All right, Shanali, thanks so much. Stay with us as we move on to our next topic, and that is crypto communication. That is the subject of much discussion with Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter. To, to, to talk about that and more, I want to bring in Mercedes Bent, partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. And Mercedes, as we know, there's a huge uh, crypto community on Twitter. And I'm curious what you think Musk uh, sort of uh, butting in here, potentially even making a hostile takeover or attempting a hostile takeover. What having Musk more involved in Twitter could mean for the crypto community? The crypto community is extremely fond of Elon Musk, and he, in some ways, I think is lead degen amongst the, the, the believer crowd. And I think that if he were to become more involved in the community, I certainly think there's been a lot of speculation around whether that would mean a more decentralized messaging platform, whether the you know, a centralized entity is necessarily the best. There's a lot of talk about what type of speech would be allowed, um, but I believe the crypto enthusiasts would be extremely, extremely happy. So much of the conversation has been around cryptocurrencies and payments and the economy and assets and investing. Twitter does allow for some of this through the Lightning Network. How then does social media and commerce start to merge? I think this is one of the big areas that has been not fully realized yet in the crypto space is a social network that is entirely crypto native. And I think there's a couple of different ways that it could come about. I think as we as you're mentioning messaging, if we think about a crypto native messaging solution, whether that is um, happens through an existing messaging network or separate. There's a lot of really interesting players saying, hey, how do you message somebody who has a wallet that you can see there's really interesting stuff in it. You know you might share some affinities or identities, but you don't have no way to contact them. So there needs to be a core messaging infra layer of both the application and infra layer to, to kind of solve this. Mercedes, talk to us about what's happening on the consumer front when it comes to uh, cryptocurrency. Obviously, we hear so much about NFTs, and for so many people, it's just, should I buy Bitcoin or not? What do you think are the main trends that are really going to define the consumer side of the market this year? I think one of the really big areas that there was a lot of talk about last year, but continues to be this year, is DAO tooling. DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, are a new type of entity where people form around an interest or a purpose. There's the Ukraine DAO, there's the climate DAOs, there's uh, DAOs focused on sports, where investors in DAO-like companies that are not fully DAOs, but companies like fan-controlled football as well. And we think that these organization types are going to be a really popular way for people to collectively organize and vote and act together on the interest area that they care about. And so I think that DAOs I really need right now a discovery layer and an aggregation layer to say, hey, here's all these interest areas you might have. You can find them and participate in these communities with tokens and actually put your money where your mouth is. So I think next, you know, we might see DAOs replacing even Facebook groups in the future. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, what other applications of DAOs do you see really taking off in the next year? We've seen fundraising for Ukraine. We've seen investing. We've seen uh, investing in NFTs. But what's the next phase? 
It's a great question. I wish I had the crystal ball, but I think that we're going to continue to see people say, hey, we're, invest we're interested in doing this collective action. It might be investment clubs. This is a big one that we're seeing companies like Syndicate are you know, putting together groups and saying, you can invest together. It might be, I mean, I'm a venture capitalist, but it might also be an alternative to funding. Think about AngelList and other crowdfunding networks. That one's a really big one that I think is going to be on the rise later this year. Mercedes-Benz, so much to watch. Partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, thank you for joining us along with Bloomberg's Shanali Basik. We're on the cusp of one of the busiest wedding seasons in 40 years as life continues to return to normal post-pandemic. Fashion rental platform Rent the Runway posted its fourth quarter earnings last week, and while they saw revenue grow more than 90% from last year, the company still reported a net loss, that, uh, but it was narrower than expected. Joining me now, CEO Jen Hyman. Jen, great to have you back with us. Look, uh, you know, you've been telling this story uh, since Rent the Runway went public, and unfortunately, it seems like many investors aren't buying it. You have shares down more than 70% um, since the IPO. Why do you think that still is? Well, first of all, we are so proud of our Q4 results. We beat on the top line and the bottom line. And I think 2021 for your really 2021 for us showed the resilience of our business model through a year that was anything but normal. And now we're entering into one of the best macro environments ever for rental. And we're excited to have the investor community watch us grow. So let's talk about the boon for weddings this year. What kind of an impact do you think that'll have on the business? It really drives cost-efficient customer acquisition for us. So we've seen that people come to rent the runway because they have an upcoming event, and then we're able to give them an incredible experience and convert them into kind of an everyday subscriber. So what it does is that the growth this year in events builds our business not only for 2022, and we gave guidance of 45 to 50% revenue growth for this year, but it also builds our customer funnel for years to come. So this is just incredible for our business all around. That said, you still got investors out there who think costs are, are, are still too high, that it's going to be difficult to turn a profit. You say Rent the Runway will be profitable. What is the strategy? So we, in our last investor call, um, addressed profitability. We can get to profitability with the cash that we currently have. We gave the number of average subscribers, 300,000 subscribers, we're at positive free cash flow. We're managing the business to that positive free cash flow. We gave a target that we're going to be adjusted EBITDA profitable within the next three to five quarters. And as you can see, our gross margins, our adjusted EBITDA margins, and our free cash flow margins have been growing quarter over quarter. And as revenue has been growing and kind of returning to the business, we have incredible operating leverage because this is a business with a lot of fixed costs. We built that OPEX base for a subscriber base that can be much larger and you'll see it be much larger this year. So here's the question. Is a dress for, you know, five weddings this year enough to convert those users into long-term paying subscribers? 
Well, 50% of our subscribers are former customers. So we've done a great job historically at converting those one-time renders into subscribers. We're doing an even more sophisticated job this year at positioning subscription from the get-go as a cost-efficient way to get dressed for multiple events. Because we know that it's not just the 2.6 million weddings. That means 2.6 million rehearsal dinners and bachelorette parties and Sunday brunches and honeymoons and galas. So we're really trying to leverage this momentum in the macro environment to show people that there's a better way. And then remember that the cost of clothing has gone up year over year, which means the value proposition of renting becomes even higher. But could this boon in weddings be temporary? What happens next year? What are the trends next year if it's not um, a wedding bonanza? Well, our business you know, is built on way more than just parties. So 75% of how people rent is for their everyday life, for going to work, for casual occasions. All rent the runway needs in order to grow is an environment where we're not sheltered at home. So we're so encouraged by the macro environment where people are just returning to normal and that means they're returning to rent the runway. What weddings are this year are just an accelerant that'll bring millions of new customer awareness into the brand and we're then able to convert them again for many years to come. So how are your conversations with investors going? You know, now that you have to answer uh, to these public market investors in, instead of venture capitalists, what do you think it is that they still don't appreciate about the story? Well, I think that we've had a lot less time to educate the investor market than we did in the private markets. Remember, we only went public in Q4. And I think that this year is going to be a year where we can show progression in all of our margins. We can, we can show very strong revenue growth this year. We've given strong guidance against Q1 and against the full year. And I think that it's all about building a track record. We don't expect things to change overnight. We want people to watch us, to be engaged with this brand and we're really excited to show people what we can do. So do you think that share price is going to turn around? I think it will. <laughs> All right, paint the picture for the next year with so inflation the and the macro environment that we're facing. I mean, the picture for the next year is that we're going to have a revenue base that enables us to drive the business towards adjusted EBITDA profitability. We're going to continue to make the right choices to build a business for the long term, which means increasing our subscriber engagement, which drives higher ARPU over time, which brings customers into the brand. We're making it easier to find clothing that fits you, that you love. So I think that this is really the beginning of the next chapter of our business and really excited to outline for investors this very clear path to profitability that we have. All right, Jennifer Hyman, CEO of Rent the Runway, thank you, as always, for stopping by. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Stay with us all week. We'll be breaking down big tech earnings, kicking off with Netflix tomorrow. Andre Swanston, TransUnion Senior Vice President, will be joining us to discuss. And don't forget to check out our new podcast. You can find it on The Terminal, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.